Uh, we're going to be uh, together these next uh, few weeks. You heard um, Harry say we were going to be in the, uh, I was doing four weeks, we're going to be in Habakkuk. Um, and, and before we read this morning's passage, I just want to take a few minutes to talk about uh, the context of Habakkuk's uh, prophesying into and who he is, because he's one of those minor prophets, which doesn't mean he's not important, it just means his book is short. It's only three chapters, uh, we're going to make that into four weeks, um, so if you look at that, it means one week we're going to spend time on, on you know, a few verses versus a whole chapter, but we, um, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. We actually aren't even sure how to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, so if you grew up in a church or have, have learned to pronounce his name differently than I'm pronouncing it this morning, that's okay. You're just as right as I am. So if you're a, a Habakkuk person versus a Habakkuk person, uh, we can talk afterwards, maybe, you know, duel in the front of the church to settle it once and for all. But So we're not, we're not even certain about how to pronounce his name. What, what we know is he's a temple prophet. He's a temple prophet, meaning he was uh, a prophet that re- resided at the temple. And Jerusalem, if you had a question of, of God, if you had a question about, about life, you would come to the temple and you would seek out one of these temple prophets and you'd, you'd ask your question of them and then they would go and, and take it to the Lord and hopefully come back with an answer for you. A, a lot like in some ways a pastor might operate today. You, you've got a question about life or you need prayer or you have a question about God's word. You, you come and ask you know, me and I tell you, go around the corner and, and Harry's office, he's in there, just knock a little bit harder and he'll, he'll answer it for you. But... They were obviously prophets, and, and, and many of them anointed and, uh, by God like Habakkuk was. We know that he was prophesying sometime between 609 and 605 B.C., the end of, of good King Josiah's reign, during the reign of the, the puppet king who had been installed by the Egyptians, Jehoiakim. And he, he began his, his prophecy as the Babylonians, or as we see in the passage, the Chaldeans are being raised up as a, as a new world superpower. They're not quite the dominant force yet, but they're going to be. As he finishes his prophecy, we know that, that Nebuchadnezzar has begun his incursions into Palestine and into Judah and will you know, eventually take them captive and destroy them. And Josiah was a reforming king, but as his reign ends, things are still not great. Israel and, and Judah, they're separate nations now, and Judah's corrupt nation, very corrupt. Even the, their temple worship has been defiled. Their kings go between good king and bad king, and more often than not, they're terrible kings. And then the threat of the Babylonians is at hand, and Habakkuk's worried. He's concerned. He's looking at life around him and wondering, how much longer will this go on? Why hasn't God done anything? I think it's a good time to go through this book because we've just finished Christmas. You know, this season of of love and joy and of peace and and the beautiful decorations and the twinkly lights and all of those things. And we're on the other side of that now. And we realize life goes on. We we stare at the stark reality that probably on Monday you've got to go back to work. And in a a week or so, if you're like my my oldest daughter, you've got to go back to school. So life goes on. And, and, and after all of the joy and the peace and the happiness has died down, we realize that we begin to feel the weight of the world around us again. The stresses of life, the uncertainty of life, the injustice and the suffering and the hardship that we see and experience. And it's into that kind of world that Habakkuk prophesies. 
These three chapters are a reminder that would, it might seem that life's out of control, that things are out of sorts, but God reminds Habakkuk, even this morning, he will remind him that he's still in control, that the sovereign God is still sovereign, that he's still in control and that the king is on the throne. And so Habakkuk, over these three chapters, points us to how to live by faith in the midst of the world we inhabit. This morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses, and so if you're willing and able, will you stand as we read God's Word together? The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all of their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. And they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come this morning asking, as we open Your word, you would be at work in us with the power of Your Spirit. You would use Your Word this morning to encourage us and equip us to live faithfully in the midst of the world we inhabit. We pray that You would use it to convict us and draw us back to You that we might cling to the cross of Christ our Savior. I pray this in his name. Amen. Maybe seated. Do you ever wonder where God is? Do you ever wonder why something's happened to you? Why God's let it happen? Do you ever wonder why God hasn't done something? Do you ever go frustrated or angry with God? Do you ever have disappointments by the answers you get? Never wonder why he's allowed something to happen to you or one of your loved ones and not those people over there. Answers, of course you have. Of course you do. And you're not alone in that. I mean, somebody right around you this morning is wondering those questions. We, we, we just came through this season of celebrating Christmas. And yet Christmas is also a season that is full of hardship and deep sorrow. 
The brokenness of relationships is more painful than normal because it's more evident. When you're not speaking to someone in your family and you have to get together as a family, it makes things awkward. It's a, it's a, a season that brings back the, the loss of loved ones to the forefront of our hearts and our minds as we grieve that we're not with them this season. See, it's a season that, that for all of its joy and its peace and its love, it's also full of sadness and brokenness. Maybe th- th- this Christmas you're a parent who, who had to experience the sadness of, on Christmas morning, your children's disappointment that you couldn't get them the gift they wanted. It's been hard enough to make ends meet this year and you couldn't find it to put the present under the tree that they longed for. Or maybe you're on the opposite end. You, you, you've got all the means in the world and you've filled the room with presents to make up for all the times you haven't been there. And as they tore through present after present, you saw how ungrateful they were. How spoiled they've become. And you grew frustrated and angry. Not at them, but at you. For you've lacked. See, in those quiet moments where we're not caroling or feasting or unwrapping, we're hit with the weight of the world. The weight of sin and the effects of sin that we feel every day. It's a world that makes us raise questions to God. Hard questions. Hard questions of faith. Why, God? Why are things this way? Why have you let this happen? And coupled with those whys are the how longs. How long until you fix this? How long until you write things? How long until this is over? How long until you do something about it? We're not alone in these questions. Habakkuk is asking these questions this morning in our text. This little book of three chapters that's pointing us to how to live by faith in this world calls us to that, right? I mean, chapter 2, kind of the center of the book, the the climax, it says what? That the righteous will live by faith. We we know those words better from Paul's hand than we do Habakkuk's hand, but that's the whole point of this book, to draw us into deeper faith, that we might live by faith in the midst of this uncertainty, in the midst of our hard questions that sometimes go without answers or come with answers we don't like. This morning we're going to look at those questions and the reasons for those questions that Habakkuk has. Then we're going to look at God's answer to those questions and how he reminds Habakkuk and how he reminds us that he is in control. Let's first look at those questions. They start right from the beginning after the superscript that tells us that this is an oracle for the prophet. We get what? We get the words, How long? How long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. And right after that in verse 3, why? Why do you let me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? And those two verses shape the rest of the conversation Habakkuk has with God here. He's considered the world around him and, and he uses one word consistently to describe it. Verse 2, he says, How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence? Violence and you will not save. 
He uses that word violence six times over his three chapters. Three times in the first chapter, three times in the second chapter. It's the word he uses to sum up the situation he lives in. We hear violence and we often think, well, you know, Johnny hit you know, Susie with whatever Christmas toy that he was playing with and she was trying to take. And, and we think physical violence. But, but the word here in, in the Hebrew is a much broader sense than that. It, it's actually a word that, that means a flagrant abuse by one man visited upon another. It speaks of this horizontal relationship we have with one another and, and the sin that runs rampant between us. The, the, the sin that, that is either perpetrated upon us or that we ourselves are the perpetrators of. And it's that word that he continually uses because it's that word that causes these cries of his heart. How long? How long shall I cry out to you? How long shall there be violence? How long until you end this madness? How long until you make me the way I ought to be? How long? It's a question that, that we find not only in, among Christians. If you're here this morning and you're visiting family or you're just visiting church and you're not a believer, this is still a question you ask. Why is the world the way it is? Why can't we just get along and coexist? How are we going to fix this? How long are we going to hate each other? How long until we begin to just speak across the aisle and get to know one another? I mean, they're asked in different ways, but it's the same question of our heart. How much longer is the suffering and the pain? How much longer is the brokenness and the injustice going to be here? We, we, we see it in, in culture. We see it in our music. 1983, uh, just two months after I was born, U2 released their uh, album dedicated to me uh, called War. And uh, it starts with the song Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And it ends with their, redemption, uh, the, the, their rendition of Psalm 40. It's their setting of Psalm 40. If you're not familiar with U2, or you're not familiar with these, these bands, it's okay. But, but their chorus, it's repeated in both of those songs, is How Long? How long? And it changes, though, from the beginning of the album to the end of the album. And Sunday, Bloody Sunday, it's how long are we going to sing this song? How long are we going to sing this song of the, of, of the brokenness, of the war, of the bloodshed, of the strife? And then if you're familiar with Psalm 40, it's that, that we're going to be singing a new song. And so the, the chorus starts again, how long, how long? And then it begins to say, how long to sing this new song? How long to sing this song? They begin to ask the question, how long until we can sing the new song? How long until things are made right? How long can that happen? And it continues. It continues through their music, through the songs of innocence and the songs of experience where they begin to talk about the troubles of the world and, and they settle and the trouble is in us. It's with us. And the question rages again, how long? How long until... The evil outside is dealt with. How long until the evil inside is dealt with? And coupled with that question is always a why. It doesn't matter which, which way you ask it. If you start with the whys, you're going to end with the how longs. If you start with the how longs, you're going to end with the whys. They're tied together at the hip. And, and that's what Habakkuk does. He, he, he asks how long, and then he turns and says, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Why doesn't God do something about the evil in the world? Why doesn't God do something about the evil in Judah, the, the leadership and their corruption? 
Why, why doesn't God right the wrongs? Is He not paying attention? Does He not care? These are the questions Habakkuk's asking. We ask the same questions, right? Why, why doesn't God fix the ills of our city and our community? Why doesn't He mend the relationships that are broken in our lives? Why doesn't He do something about these things? Habakkuk uses three pairs of words in, in verse uh, 3 to describe more fully what's going on. The, the first pair is that iniquity and wrong. And then there are two words of the, tied together. They're the two different sides of the same coin. Iniquity is, is, is the word that is the injustice, what's perpetrated. And wrong is the, what's experienced. And so he, he asked God, why, why do you look idly at these things? Why do you allow these to happen? Why are you not stopping these things? The next two are destruction and violence. These are words that are used to describe the destruction of, of the, the very systems and structures of life in communities. The very things needed to, to sustain life and, and, and encourage the flourishing of people. Why are you not stepping in, God, as there are people who are hell-bent on destroying them? This is a question that many in our nation are asking today. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. You're either looking across the aisle wondering, how much longer do we have to put up with this president? How long till we can get him out of office and begin to undo all the things he's done? Or you're on the other side of the aisle asking, how long is this this farce of an impeachment going to go on? But really it's a question that says, how long are we going to continue to allow that side or this side to destroy the very systems and structures of life? of our country. That's the cry of, of Habakkuk. That's the cry of us. And sometimes we get so caught up in that argument, we lose sight of that it's God in control. We lose sight that those things aren't the ultimate things. How long are you going to allow those who are hell-bent on destroying life and the structures and systems needed for the flourishing of your people to go on? And the last pair is this strife and, and contention that arise. These are legal terms. These are terms that, that arise from lawsuits and, and legal battles. People that are, that are using a, a corrupt system for their own personal gain through frivolous lawsuits. We, we live in a pretty litigious state today. I mean, I asked some of your doctor friends about their malpractice insurance. We live in a nation that uses and abuses the legal system for personal gain again and again. No different than Habakkuk. We, we understand and, and know how this feels. And what he ends with is, after he describes more fully the, the, the situation around him, is what it leads to. And, and you see what it leads to in verse 4. It's so that the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. The system's so corrupt that justice isn't dealt any longer. The system's so corrupt that those who are in charge and those who are, who are carrying out sentences, they themselves are corrupt and they are perverting the law of God. We, we know how this feels. We, we, we know what it's like to live in a culture, in a world where destruction and violence and strife and contention and iniquity and wrong are all about us and all around us. Even, even this morning, there are places that we know that come nightfall, we not dare go. 
Growing up, I was the son of a telephone man. My, my dad worked for Ma Bell and then all the iterations after that of all the different until he retired. And um, when I was young, Richmond was the, the murder capital of the country when it came to per capita statistics. And the center of that was Gilpin Court. And uh, the, the telephone company had very strict rules about Gilpin Court. You never went alone to a call. You went after 10 a.m. and you left before 3, even if the job wasn't done. So you avoided it at all costs when it might be dark. It was a community that at that point they had, had ripped off all the street signs from all the posts in the neighborhood so that it was harder for you to get your bearings and more difficult for you to call in your location if something was amiss. It's a place where the legal system and, and, and the justice system had stopped operating in many ways. And, and justice went forth and it was perverted. We live in places where that's not abnormal. We, we, we live in places where two people can commit the same crime and the color of the skin can dictate to them what sentence they get. That's a perverted legal system. That's the prayer and the cry of Habakkuk. We know the reality of violence as we see again and again another report of a mass shooting. We, we, we know violence and destruction because of the continued legalization of abortion. Where millions and millions of children been killed. We, we, we know the effects of sin and sinning as we see drug addiction and the opioid epidemic. We see again and again the violence and evil outside. We even see it inside the church with the hashtag church Two movement. It's not just the Catholics or the mainliners. It's, it's evangelical congregations where, where Men in leadership, pastors, have, have perverted and abused the power they've been given to prey on young men and young women. We know the violence and evil in our own families. We've experienced this Christmas season. We even know the reality in our own hearts. The rage and the malice that we cherish. The pride and the self-pity that we meditate on. The lust that we hide and inflame secretly the self-righteousness that we judge others with as we tell them they're wrong and we're right and we hold behind our back our own sin and brokenness. And we look in the mirror and we wonder, where are you, God? Why don't you do something, God? And it happens more often than not actually when we have failed again in our own struggle with sin. We look in the mirror and we wonder, where are you at? Why do you continue to let this happen? Why do you continue to let me fail? Aren't you going to do something? When are you going to make me the way I'm supposed to be and who I'm ought to be? These are the questions Habakkuk's asking. So he lives in an unjust world. And he's asking them, and, and, and in verse 5, we get the script gets flipped. God begins his answer. He begins his answer, and it's a surprising answer. Habakkuk has been yelling and screaming, how long and why? And, and God responds, look. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. 
For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now think about that answer if you were given that answer to a question. If, if I told one of my children who came to me with a legitimate question about life, you're not going to believe this if I, if, if I tell you. They're not going to believe me. Even if it's true, because it's so absurd what he's about to say. And that's what God's communicating to Habakkuk. He's saying to Habakkuk, what I'm about to tell you is, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. And, and you're not going to believe it. You're going to be in shock and awe over what I'm about to say. Because what he's about to say is that I do see, I do hear Habakkuk. I've heard your cries. I see the injustice. I see the evil. I see the sin. And I'm at work in your day. But what I'm doing is so different and crazy. Because things aren't going to get better. Habakkuk, things are going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. Why? Well, because as he says in verse 6, Behold, I am raising up, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. I'm raising up the Babylonians, Habakkuk, to come and, and take care of and, and distribute the justice that you're calling for and wondering and, and crying out for. I, I've got a plan and it's at work even now when you can't see it. And Things are about to go from bad to worse. These are, are, are ruthless people. And, and we don't really understand how awful this would have been to Habakkuk's ears. Because we don't really understand how, how just terrible the Babylonians were. I mean, we, we have historical accounts of, of how ruthless they were. They were, you know, smashing heads of children. And that they would rape and pillage and then murder and move on with no care whatsoever for the law or, or human life. And so Habakkuk hears this and he thinks things are bad right now in, in, a, in a nation that's been corrupted and is full of, of evil and, and he hears the, the Chaldeans are coming. Great. And we see the, the account of how bad they are. Because it keeps going. They, they, they march through the breadth of the earth. They seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They are a law unto themselves. They write the book. They follow no one else's. They don't pay attention to the Geneva Convention or, or, or the, the rules of, of warfare at all. They are the law unto themselves. That has to frighten you when you hear that. They come swiftly like leopards, more fierce than evening wolves, wolves who haven't eaten. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. So not only do they come and take you off or kill you, but they mock you when they do it. If you spent yesterday at any time, if you're a fan of, of football, there were two pretty big games yesterday. Um, one was more of an exhibition uh, that there was a really good game. But you, you see it often where, where there'll be a, a play that a wide receiver makes where it's a really good, good play. He, he, he beats his man and makes a, a, an outstanding catch over him. And what does he turn to do? He puts the ball down and immediately he looks back at the defensive back. And, you know, a lot of times they'll walk up. They won't say anything, but they just like walk close enough so the defensive back knows like, you know, he's, it's, it's adding that insult to injury. It's that mocking of him for not doing his job or not being able to do anything about it. 
That, that's the Babylonians all the time with everyone they conquer and run through. You can't do anything about it. I mean, it's like the kid on the, the playground who's the bigger, faster kid doing like the nanny, 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 you can't catch me. I was like the nightmare of my childhood. That kid that you couldn't catch. But it goes even worse for them. If you try to protect yourself by, by building up walls, they just build siege works and destroy you anyways. It seems, even as it ends in verse 11, that they sweep on that their own might is their God. It seems that the whole idea that might is right is at work here. That they are the bigger and the stronger. I mean, could you imagine how surprising this must have been to Habakkuk when he's been crying out to God, crying out to God, God, where are you, God, what are you going to do, God, how long do we have to wait, God, why aren't you doing something? And God says, I am doing something. And the bad's about to get worse. The Babylonians are, are, are on their way. Because that, that's what's interesting here is that it is God at work. This is not the answer Habakkuk was wanting or expecting. That's the same for you and I. We, we, we have things come up in life. We, we, we look at the, the craziness around us. We look at the, the world around us and we cry out to God for, for help. And often the answer we get is not the answer that we expect or not the answer that we want. And sometimes it does really seem that things go from bad to worse. And we wonder why. We see the effects of sin around us. We see that our sin inside of us and we cry out. And God doesn't seem to hear us or he seems to hear us. And out of spite or malice, he answers us with things going from bad to worse. So what's going on? Well, part of what's going on is God is reminding us. God is reminding us that he's still here, that he hasn't abandoned his people, that he hasn't abandoned Habakkuk, that he's still the sovereign God. We see it in the language of the text. Who is bringing the Babylonians? It's God who is bringing them. He is raising up the Chaldeans. We, we, we see it even in the introduction, the, the superscript to this passage, that it's an oracle that Habakkuk saw. It was given to him. He's being invited into a conversation with God, and he's taking that opportunity, but it's all from God. And God is at work. In verse 5, we see that he is the one acting here. He is the central character. He is the one bringing the message. He is the one bringing the Chaldeans. He is the sovereign one. He is the one still in control. And that isn't just true from the 35,000 foot level looking down. It's true on the street level. It's true for you. It's true for me that, that he is a sovereign God and he's at work even when things may seem that they go from bad to worse. So why do we have confidence? Where, where do we find the confidence to live by faith if things are going from bad to worse? Well, here's why I think that, that Habakkuk's call to live by faith resonates with us. Because this God is, is, is a God who is not full of malice. This God is a, is a sovereign God who's not harsh or punitive. No, this is not punishment that he is dealing out. This is discipline. This is discipline of him trying to, to, to get his people to wake up and to soften their hearts and, and to, to hear him again and to heed his word. We know this because at the same time that Habakkuk is prophesying, his friend or his colleague, his fellow prophet, Jeremiah is prophesying as well. Jeremiah chapter 7 is, is given the words that, that God has been for centuries sending his prophets to his people. 
Jeremiah chapter 7, it says, The day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, and to this day I have persistently sent my servant, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their necks. And they did worse than their fathers. Why did God send his prophets? Why is he trying to win and woo them? Because he loved them. Because he loves his people and he continues to pursue his people with the word over and over again. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet, hoping that this prophet will be the one that the people hear and heed and return to him. And yet it tells us that they didn't. They grew stiff-necked. It's the same for you and I. That as as things go from, from bad to worse in our eyes, that God is there. And that He's pursuing us. He's pursuing us through His Word. Pursuing us through the the Word He's given us as we open it on Sunday mornings and proclaim it to one another. As we open it at Bible studies, as you open it in your daily devotion, as you open His Word, He is pursuing you with it. When when, when things are at bottom and you're in the hotel room and you reach over to the the, the, the nightstand to pull out from the drawer the, the Bible that's there and you open it, He is pursuing you. Just as he pursued them. He's pursuing. And he's saying, listen to me. Don't harden your hearts. Open your eyes and see. It's hard. You're asking how long. But don't forget that I am pursuing you with my steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the ultimate hope in Jeremiah's prophecy, right? That, that, that they still have time to repent. That, that God is a merciful and loving God. And then and, and the key in, in Habakkuk is not just that the righteous will live by faith, but that there is a hope that they can cling to, an ultimate hope that they point to and they hold out for. And God says, I'm present. I'm present with you. Sometimes he does let things go from bad to worse. Sometimes he lets the worst thing you could possibly imagine happen. But not because he hates you, not because he's punishing you, not because he's petty. Sometimes he allows you to get caught and it feels like it's the the worst thing in the world, but it's actually the best. It's actually the best. Because sometimes he he allows your job to end and and makes you wonder how you're going to make ends meet. Or he allows your your marriage to explode or or your kids to, to run off. Sometimes he allows us to know sickness and difficulty. He allows these things to happen because he loves us. He is willing to strip away anything that we cling to and hold on to as God. He's willing to to take from us the very things that we look to for salvation and rest and joy and purpose. He's willing to take them out of our hands to free our hands for Him. That we might cling to Him. Why does God allow us to live in this unjust world, this sad and broken world He does it ultimately to show us His steadfast, sovereign, sanctifying love. That you might know that He's pursuing you. That you might know that He loves you. That you might know He's in control and He is working out all things for the good of your salvation. That you might grow in faith. That you might grow in trust. And He's able to do this. He's able to do it because the worst thing you could possibly imagine He actually endured. That thing that you think about, like this would be the end of life for me if it happened, he endured. 
the one who knew no sin becoming sin, the one who had done no wrong but was crucified. See, the actual worst thing that could ever happen was when God the Son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did it happen? Because He loves us. Why do you take on all of our injustice, all of our sin, all of our evil upon Himself? Not because He had to, but because He wanted to. Because He's pursuing us. Because He loves us. Because He wants to woo and win us. In the midst of this dark and sad world, in the midst of hardship, when things are going from bad to worse, don't forget that God's steadfast love is pursuing you. It's not just pursuing you through His Word, but He's been pursuing you through the Word incarnate, through the cross. He's pursuing you through the cross of Christ, having taken all of your sin, having taken all of your injustice and evil upon Himself, and He might set you free to live by faith. And not just today, but to live by faith of, of the world to come, of the new heavens and the new earth, where the pain and the injustice and the sorrow and the brokenness and the sin are no more. He's telling Habakkuk that things are going from bad to worse, but they're going from bad to worse because he's pursuing his people to woo and to win them. He's pursuing us. And so, while we wait, we no longer cry like Habakkuk, how long? How long until you do something because he has done something? at the cross at Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago. He did the most horrible, imaginable thing when he died a sinner's death for you and for me. And so we look to Habakkuk and hear the call to live by faith in this unjust world. Let's pray. So gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminders that you are a sovereign God, control of all things, that you call us, that you pursue us. Pursue us with the cross of Christ to woo us and win us that we might be reconciled to you. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.